No one can serve two masters. This morning we are opening the word of God to Psalm 119, starting with verse 113 through verse 120. And this is the passage that Brother Allen read. And uh, we, as a church, we have, uh, we have read through and we have considered um, 112 verses in this, uh, this chapter of the, the Bible. And uh, we're looking this morning at the next eight for the next stanza of this gloriously long and beautiful psalm. And uh, I, I, I pause here to note that this is, uh, this is like the rest of uh, this chapter, of course, the, uh, the longest chapter in the Bible, um, that when we set out on this, uh, this journey through Psalm 119, the whole psalm is a meditation on God's word. It's a chapter of the Bible that is about the Bible. And how much can there be to say about the Bible? And yet we've gone eight verses at a time through this whole chapter, and, uh, and, and I think every stanza uh, has something new uh, and, and, uh, and fresh and delightful to say about God's word. Every stanza approaches the beauty and the power and the hope and the depth of meaning that God's word has to offer us um, from uh, a different aspect and a different emphasis. And these verses in particular offer us a a contrast and and they express a contrast. um, And uh, this contrast is a beautiful and powerful biblical theme concerning the word of God, but it is um, approaching uh, the word of God from a unique perspective. You cannot love both God and the world. You cannot love God and yet be lukewarm in your love for him. I'm going to uh, read this passage again, and as I read it, notice the contrast that the psalmist draws here. Notice what it is, and notice what it's not. The psalmist says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. The stanza begins, I think uh, from time to time it's helpful as we look at the Psalms to remember that these are sung, that uh, these were given uh, to be sung, and we don't have the tunes um, any longer, and, uh, but we have the words, and we have them translated for us to, to, uh, to English. Uh, but this is a, a song, and so it's a song that is given to you to sing along with. These are our songs for the congregation, for God's people to get together and sing together. So this is, these are the psalmist's words, and 
Throughout this sermon, as with lots of sermons on the, song, uh, on the Psalms, we, we talk about what the psalmist says. But the psalmist says it so that you can say it. The psalmist preaches it so that you can say it in your heart as a prayer from your heart to God. So this is not just one man's prayer. This is your prayer to God. This is something that you can take into your heart as your own. So the psalmist says, and you are invited to say with him, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Now that's a powerful uh, contrast. The psalm begins with a two-part statement, one negative and one positive, placing two different ideas in contrast to each other. On the one hand, the psalmist says, I love your law, talking to God. I love the law of God. And on the other hand, I hate the double-minded. Now, the first thing that you might notice is that this is indeed a very absolute contrast. The psalmist has opposite attitudes towards these two ideas. He loves the one, he hates the other. It's a response, um, two different responses that sit on the farthest extremes of the spectrum. There is um, infinite space between the two. They're, they're, they're not uh, running parallel. They are running in opposite directions. Uh, I love your law, but I hate the double-minded. The positive statement is a simple enough one, um, a statement on its own. And it's one that you see throughout the Psalms. It's one that you certainly see throughout Psalm 119. I love the law of God. The love here is an affection um, or an attraction, but uh, the, this Hebrew word for love is less grounded in emotions or feelings than our modern American concept of love. So the way we talk about love sometimes as an emotion, it's something that you can sit at home by yourself and feel and do nothing about. That's, that, that's not quite what this love is about. So the, the feeling is, is certainly there. The, the, the uh, passion is there. But this is a love that's active. It represents a, a singular focus and attraction and movement towards something. This, this is a love that does not exist without movement in the direction of what is loved. So when the psalmist says, I love your law, it's not only his focus. It's not only something that he thinks about, but it's something that in his life he moves towards. He pursues it. And um, I think if, if you've had a, a romantic relationship, if, uh, if, if you're married, um, I don't think you feel loved if you're not pursued, do you? Well, this is, that's what this word, I love your law, means. You're pursuing God's law. You're seeking it. You're moving uh, towards it. Now, that's a very wonderful sentiment on its own, that we love the law, we focus on it, we run towards it. We run towards God, we run towards his word. But the psalmist is placing that love in contrast to something else. He puts the love for God's law on one side of the coin, and he's got something else on the opposite side of the coin. Now, if you love one thing, then you would expect to hate the opposite of that thing, right? 
If you love the light, it kind of makes sense that you might hate the darkness. What's the opposite of God's law? You might think lawlessness. The opposite of God's law is not having law. Or you might think that, uh, that it's, it's a different law, one that's opposed to God's law. Um, on the one hand, you have God's law. On the other hand, you have kind of something that's in direct opposition to God's law, and that's, that's the opposite. So if you love God's law, maybe it makes sense to say, I hate lawlessness, or I hate law that's directly opposed to God's law. But that's not the contrast that the psalmist draws here, is it? Instead, the psalmist says, I hate the double-minded. The Hebrew for double-minded means divided or half-hearted. In our reading of the Psalms, we've often heard the psalmist speak of God's enemies. Um, But this time he's not speaking of people who uh, actively hate uh, God's law and actively work against it. He's talking about people who are divided or half-hearted, which means that there's an appearance that at least part of them cares about God's law, but part of them doesn't. That uh, if they're half-hearted, then there's a half that is hearted, okay? Um, And so... They are double-minded because part of them seems to show an interest in God, but, uh, but part of them does not. They're walking the fence. They're standing in the middle. Now, a lot of times we think about things in, on, on, a spe- uh, on a spectrum. Um, and I think a lot of times in, if, if you watch um, uh, modern TV or, or movies, everything is gray, isn't it? And so we think about things in, in terms of, uh, of shades of, of gray or a spectrum. Um, you might think, you know, there are heroes, there are villains, and then, you know, there's kind of a lot uh, in the middle. And if you're in the middle, then, you're, you know, you're not as good as the hero, but you're not as bad as the villain. So if you're in the, in, in the middle, that's not as bad as being an outright villain, right? The people in the middle we might think of as, um, as, uh, as people who are on neither one side nor the other. But in this stanza of uh, Psalm 119, that's exactly what the psalmist says he hates. He hates the double-minded, the people who seem to be on neither one side nor the other, the ones who ride the fence. They think they can be good people but not religious. They think they can serve God half-heartedly. But Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. The psalmist is speaking of a love for God that is faithful and exclusive, so that there is none above him or beside him. The next four verses, um, the next few verses, uh, I'll say, show how the psalmist not only loves the word of God, but loves the word of God exclusively, turning away from and fleeing far from every other influence of the world. You see, the problem with 
loving God half-heartedly is that inevitably that means that uh, the rest of your heart is loving something else. And every bit of that part of you that is not uh, centered on God, focused on him and pursuing him, is pursuing inevitably something else. And that's the problem. And that's what we're going to see as we look at, uh, at these verses. So as we look to the next verses, the psalmist says, You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. In verse 114 and 115. Our only hope is in God. In these four verses, what we're going to see is two key principles for how we love God's word. That God's word is our hope and that God's word upholds us. We'll see those are two different but very related concepts for how the psalmist uh, expresses and pursues that love of God. He hopes in it, and then that word of God upholds him. Our only hope is in God. And uh, in verses 114 and 115, we see a hope, how the psalmist hopes in God's word. Now, we use that uh, that those words often, that we hope in God's word. We hope in his promises. So sometimes it helps to say things a little bit differently. We say our only hope is in God. Our exclusive hope is in God. Exclusive, mean, meaning cutting out everything else, leaving only God's word as our hope. It doesn't do us any good, and in fact, it is incredibly destructive for us to hope in anything else besides God. There is no backup plan for God. Inevitably, every thought, every action that you spend pursuing the world instead of God is taking you farther from God. So if you want your hope to be in God, if you want, if you say that your hope is in God, then if you're hoping half-heartedly in, in God and the rest of you is hoping in something else, the problem is you're being pulled in two opposite directions. Every part of you that is pursuing anything other than God is, pu- is pulling you in the opposite direction, away from God. It can't be both. So if God is worth your trust, then he is worth all of your trust and not just part of it. You can't hope in both God and the world Some of you might remember the opening lines of Psalm 121. This is one of the songs of ascent that God's people used to sing when they would journey to the temple. I think these are just such beautiful, simple but beautiful words in Psalm 121 expressing the heart of the believer that we carry with us through our lives, through the journey Uh, through life. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? When you imagine those uh, people of God journeying to the temple, they're looking up to the temple. They're looking to where they are going. They are traveling in a direction. Wherever they are coming from, they are headed towards the temple. And they are looking to God for their help. 
Now, you cannot look forward to the temple and back to where you came from at the same time, can you? And you certainly cannot move in both directions at once. We have a, tra- a tragic example of, uh, of, of this uh, principle in Lot's wife, recorded in Genesis chapter 19, don't we? This is where the angels of God went to rescue Lot and his family from that sinful and destructive city of Sodom. You remember, God was going to judge Sodom and destroy it. And the angels told Lot and his family to flee from the hills and not look back. But you see, so as Sodom was being destroyed, Lot and his family fled. But as they ran away, you see, Lot's wife had a part of her that still loved where she came from. That sinful city, that sinful place that she had just been rescued from. And so she could not help but be drawn back in that other direction to the very thing that she had just been saved from. And so she turned around, she stopped, and she looked back at that sinful place, and she became a pillar of salt. As a Christian, you have just been rescued from this world of sin. And there is no room to stop and look back with longing and yearning for what you've just been rescued from. The psalmist says, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. God is his hope and his protection. God alone. And that means he cannot have any place for hope in anything else. That picture of God as my hiding place and my shield, it conjures a picture of danger, doesn't it? If you need a hiding place, then it suggests that you need something, that you've got something to hide from. If you need a shield, it uh, suggests that there's something for the shield to protect you from. I think this is the kind of thing that you see in, uh, in, in movies um, sometimes, and um, Maybe there's a parent or a soldier who's acting as a, as a protector, but, uh, but the person being protected is not trained. They're panicked. Imagine you have enemies all around you, but you have a protector, a shield. And you have a hiding place in the arms of your protector who's looking out for you, is trained and able to protect you, and knows where to hide, knows what to do to keep you safe. And as long as you're silent, as long as you're still, the enemy cannot find you and cannot hurt you. But you're panicked and you're scared. And so everything in you, that instinct is to rip yourselves out of the arms of the protector and run away. And so instead of staying where you're safe, you tear yourself out of the arms of your protector and you leap from your hiding place and you run. And the moment that you do, the enemy finds you. You can't have God be your hiding place and your shield, and then run away from him to something else at the same time. God is your shield and your protector. God is your hiding place. Don't tear yourself from his arms and run elsewhere. Find your safety in him and nowhere else. Now, the evildoers in verse 115 represent something else. Again, this is 
The contrast. They are people who are pursuing something else besides or in addition to God and his word. And so they represent every worldly impulse in philosophy that would lead the psalmist to anywhere other than God. And so the psalmist says, depart from me, you evildoers, nearer to God and farther, as far as possible, as far as the east is from the west, from the desires of the world. If the world is pulling me eastward and God is westward, I'm not only going to run to God in uh, the west, I'm going to run from uh, the east. I'm going to run away from evildoers and I'm, I'm going to run to God. There is no room to mix worldly influence with your hope in God. It only pulls you away. The next two verses then express the psalmist's total reliance on God. Now, we said that, that the, the psalmist hopes in God, but where does that hope come from? And that's what the next couple of verses speak to. It's the psalmist's total reliance on God both to make this possible and to see to it that the hope he has in God is not in vain. The verses say, Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. Now, we are blessed this morning on this Mother's Day to have a lot of mothers in uh, in the congregation. And uh, so I'm sure that every one of you and, um, and uh, plenty of dads too, you've held a little child who's resting comfortably in your arms. And when you do that, um, now sometimes that you've been holding the child for hours and it's 2 a.m. and you get a little tired. <laughs> but uh, especially that first, I, I think it's, it, it's a very special moment, that first moment where the, the, the little child wants to be held up and you pick up the child, and they fit just perfectly, comfortably, safely, and it feels right. And you can tell that that child is comfortable. Now, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I, I think a very comfortable place is, uh, is my bed. But when you have a little child, that child will be in bed and, and crying. They're not comfortable in the bed. They need their parents' arms. They need their mother's arms. Uh, to make them feel comfortable, don't they? It's comfortable, it's safe, and the child just settles in and relaxes, and and it's perfect. Now, on the other hand, have you ever held a squirming and writhing little child who doesn't want to be held? It's not quite so easy or perfect, is it? It's quite a lot more difficult. When the psalmist prays for God to uphold him, it expresses a resting in God, like that little child, not the one who is writhing and trying to get out of his parents' arms, but that little child just in that moment when all the child wanted was to be held, and the child rests and is comfortable and safe and fits just right. The psalmist is expressing a rest in God. For God to uphold you means you rest in his arms. And so it's certainly not a work of the psalmist to be upheld. It's a work of God to uphold the psalmist. There isn't any cooperation between the one doing the holding and the one being held. 
The only role for the one being held is to rest. You can't try really hard to be held, can you? When the psalmist um, says, uphold me according to your promise, he is resting in the arms of God. He is trusting in the word of God's promise, and, he, uh, and not in anything that he can do or that the world can do for him. Uh, sometimes I, I, I think it's uh, funny to uh, I'll hold it. That I, I like to hold my kids. My kids know this. I'll, I'll hold them where their feet are just off the ground. I'll tell them to run. And so their feet will move, and they'll, <laughs> and, uh, and, and they'll, they'll kind of move. And they think it's funny, and I think it's funny. Um, but uh, their moving isn't helping us get anywhere any faster, is it? <laughs> when you're being held, you rest. So um, the psalmist hopes in God. He hopes that it is God who holds him up. And then it is God who ensures that his hope will not be put to shame. Three stages there. He hopes in God, recognizes it's God who holds him up, and then it is God who ensures that his hope will not be put to shame. And notice something in these verses, that it is that everything in, in these verses um, stands on God holding the psalmist up. God upholding the psalmist. God's holding me up according to his promise is what keeps me safe when verse 117 says, hold me up that I may be safe. So God upholding you is what keeps you safe. That's number one. Then number two, his holding me up allows me to obey his commands and his statutes. Where verse 117 also says, hold me up that I may have regard for your statutes continually. Once again, it is God holding him up that makes this uh, happen. And then lastly, God's holding me up ensures that my hope in him will be fulfilled. That I won't be put to shame. Verse 116 says, uphold me and let me not be put to shame in my hope. The whole Christian religion comes down to this. It is faith in God. It is believing in his promise and resting in his promise. You are saved by faith. And being saved by faith, you then live by faith. Until at last, by faith, you come into your reward in heaven. All three are present in these two little verses. And all of them are grounded in faith, in the work of God to hold you up. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification meaning that when you trust in God to save you, and you are saved. Sanctification meaning that when you trust in God... He will enable you by the power of the uh, the Holy Spirit to live according to his uh, his word by faith. He upholds you. And finally, your glorification. On the last day when you come into the presence of God, glorification means that on that day, by grace, through faith, You will stand in the presence of God 
and his work in you will be complete and you will be perfected and you will be raised together with Christ and you will dwell with him eternally. That's the promise of the gospel. By grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works. And it stands in stark contrast to anywhere that your hope in the world can ever lead you or point you. The promises of God will prevail. They will prevail on the day when you are justified, when you are saved from your sin, saved from sin and death. The promises of God will then be victorious day by day through your life as God and his power sustains you. And the promises of God will prevail on the last day when you are glorified. Verses, uh, the next few verses, the last few verses of uh, this stanza, 118 through 120, the psalmist says, You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Just to contemplate God's judgment against the world, this is where the world leads. This is where the hopes of the world leads. It leads to to judgment, to misery, to death. And it causes the psalmist to tremble, just to think on it. To think on where I would be had God not rescued me. There is nothing worth desiring in the wickedness and the cunning devices of the world and every reason to flee from sin into the safe arms of God. Verse 118 exposes what it means when we've gone astray from God's instructions in our lives. What does it mean when you have said, I trust in God, but now I'm wandering away? What does that mean? We go astray because we trust in our own cunning. That's why we do it. Because we trust in our own wisdom, our own cunning, our own devices, instead of trusting in the wisdom and the goodness of God's instruction for us. But all of our sinful human cunning is in vain. It's for nothing. It will not lead us where we think it will. Your human cunning might get you that thing that you're grasping at right this moment, but it won't lead you to the satisfaction and the happiness that you think it will take you. It won't. It is for nothing. It will not keep you safe. It will not be rewarded. The only place it leads, the psalmist says, is to being spurned by God. That is the cunning of the double-minded. And verse 119 exposes what it means when we pursue wicked and fleshly desires instead of God. We do wicked deeds. Why do we say that we trust God and then we do what's wicked in his eyes? We do it because we, at that time, are not loving God. We do it because we have traded our love for God for a love of fleshly, worldly things. What we do shows what we love. 
Now, if, um, if you're someone who is not yet married, the kind of person that you're attracted to, that you love, it shows something about what you value. That's why it's so wicked to, um, uh, when, when, when we talk about uh, uh, marriage, we talk about being unequally yoked. Why, that's such a dangerous and such an awful thing. Because the most important thing that you ought to love in, in a, another human being is their love for God, is their reflection of God's goodness and the Holy Spirit in them. That's one of the reasons why we talk about fellowship in this body and, uh, and, and in the body of Christ throughout the world, why it's so powerful, why you can meet someone on the street. And when you find out that they belong to Christ, that you can not only feel but know for a fact a deep and rich connection, that you are brothers and sisters and forever. And because of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it is a powerful thing. Because what we share is the love of God in our lives. We share the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we love, when we love that brother or that brother uh, or that sister, it is... When you meet a, a brother or sister in Christ, um, that, that should be an, an experience of, of love at first sight. That's, uh, that's why, as a church, we want to be characterized by, by a, a loving and welcome, um, welcoming spirit. For anybody who walks through those doors, they may think differently about uh, theological issues. They may, um, they may have different ideas, different backgrounds. They may look different. They may think different. They they may, have, they, they may be a different age, but you love the Holy Spirit in them. And that is eternal. It is powerful. It is deep and rich in meaning. And it's real. So again, what we do shows what we love. So the psalmist says that God will discard the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I will love God. You see, you cannot love both. If you are pursuing the things of this world, you can't say, I love God and I pursue the world at the same time. Those two are opposites. You love God and you pursue God, even in all of your worldly endeavors. You do it unto the glory of God. You will either love wickedness or you love God. God will discard the wicked like dross. Therefore, stop loving wickedness and love God exclusively. These verses speak to the battle that is waged in us between the spirit and the flesh. The Apostle Paul wrote repeatedly and he wrote emphatically about that battle. And he taught us the attitude that we ought to have as we walk in the spirit and not the flesh. Again, if Christ has saved you, then he has set you free from sin. Romans 8 says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So stop pursuing the flesh. Stop loving the flesh. Love God. Love his word. Nobody can know the guilt and misery of sin like someone who has been saved from sin. Nobody can speak to the misery of the fiery furnace like someone who's been rescued from it, who has felt it and has been rescued from it. For the Christian, the thought of going back to sin is a horror. It is a horror. That's why the psalmist is so emphatic in verse 120. Those are dramatic words in this psalm. Aren't they? My flesh trembles for fear, and I'm afraid of your judgments. Now, this is someone who is rescued. So he, he has a hiding place and a shield in God, and so he has tremendous comfort. But just to think on the misery of the sin that he was rescued from is... It causes him to tremble in amazement and, I think, uh, in, in relief. For the Christian, the thought of going back to sin is a horror, and that is why the psalmist is so dramatic in that final verse. He shudders at the thought of going back to sin. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul goes on to instruct us as to how we ought to live as ones who have been rescued from sin and death. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And this, people of God, This is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why what this means for you, to live in Christ and not be the double-minded, it does not mean that you will be perfected. Brothers and sisters, you will have sin that remains in your life. You will. You will continue to struggle with sin. You will continue to fight against it. Brothers and sisters, when you find that sin in your life, what do you do? You put your trust in God and you run to him. You rest in him. You trust in him and the Holy Spirit will do what you cannot do and will overcome that sin in your life more and more and more until the day when finally you are glorified. And whatever sin remains in your life, 
will be finally and absolutely put to death, and you will live with Jesus Christ in glory forever. Those who hope in God will not be put to shame, will not be put to shame. There is no need to take out an insurance policy when you put your trust in God. There is no need for a backup plan. If he is worth trusting, then he is worth trusting completely. It's easy to think, I love God, but accept that little bit of sin in your life. That idea ought to repulse you. should repulse you. It repulses God. In the book of Revelation, the Son of Man sent a message uh, to the churches of the world. And uh, maybe the harshest words were reserved for the church that was found to be neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my, my mouth. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ, you have nothing to fear. You can see that sin is a fearful thing, and it is. You can see that it is a, a terrible thing, and it is. But you do not have to fear it. Because God is able to be your shield and your shelter. He is your salvation. By faith, you are saved, not because of anything that you did, but because of the work of Christ for you. By faith, you rest in him and you are saved. He is also your life. By faith, you walk in the spirit. And the power for that walk does not come in you, but it comes from the Holy Spirit working in you. You rest in him, trust in him, put your faith in him day by day. And the power of the Holy Spirit will work itself out in you, and by faith you will walk. And finally, he is your hope. By faith you can know that he will complete the work that he started in you. And for you, by faith, death has no sting in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can trust that you will be raised to live together with him for eternity. Your hope will have its reward. In hoping in Christ, you are hoping in something that is real, that is solid, that is already accomplished, and it is sure. And that hope will not fail. Praise God, because he will not fail. He is your salvation, your life, and your hope. And you have every reason to love him, to love him with everything that is in you exclusively, not torn in many directions, but to fix your eyes on him and love him with a love that moves, that pursues he is worthy, he is faithful, and he will complete the work that he started in you. Amen.